the dot connecting that happens when you pull all of those together and you see the visual unfold on the canvas or the story start to be told. And it creates a really strong foundation for helping determine what we focus on. That's what caused me to gravitate so much toward the Strengths Finder. There's almost this flavor of the month club that can sometimes be created, whether it's an assessment tool or a particular book. And you just learn there are basics that work. If you go into the Gallup space, you learn that we're not one of 16. We're not one of four. We're not one of nine. We are one in 74 trillion when you look at the population of 34 strengths. Well, there are only about 8 billion people on the planet. We are uniquely and wonderfully made. In a corporate world, where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. This is part two of Jeff's interview with Teresa Carey. You will want to listen to part one, but for now, let's listen as Teresa continues her discussion of the assessment tools that she uses. So what, you're certified in so many different assessments. I know uh, Gallup Strength Finders, um, uh, Myers-Briggs, DISC. Like, do you have a go-to or what kind of, you just use some, you know, how do you determine which ones to use or do you use them all when you do your coaching? Well, I believe that it's a collection of data points that really helps paint a very full picture of that individual. And you don't place all of your weight on those, but I just love the, the science and the, um, the dot connecting that happens when you pull all of those together and you see the, you know, the visual unfold on the canvas or the story start to be told about the individual. And it creates a really strong foundation for helping determine what we focus on in the coaching process. Yeah, I re I th I know you you uh, follow Adam Grant. Uh, the guy, I think he's a, f a phenomenal um, thought leader that we're, you know we're grateful to have in our society. He, he wrote an article about ten years ago that I just uh, saw, but basically how he uh, fell out of love with with Myers Briggs. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, uh, the, have you read that article? And you, if you did, any comments on that? I haven't read the article. I don't place as much emphasis on Myers-Briggs. Frankly, that's what caused me to gravitate so much toward the Strengths Finder. 
when I started using that about seven years ago. And you might say, well, Teresa, you were late to the game because a lot of people, you know, had had gone to StrengthsFinder and already left. And I think that's part of the problem. There's almost this flavor of the month club that can sometimes be created, whether it's an assessment tool or a particular book. And you just learn there are basics that work, right? John Wooden always started with his basketball players by helping them tie their shoes. You know, that was the first thing he taught them. Right. And there's something to uh, learn from that. And if you go into the Gallup space, you learn that we're not one of 16. We're not one of four, like with the disc. We're not one of nine. Uh, and I'm trying to think of the tool that a lot of people talk about now. I don't use it, but, you know, it seems to be one of the latest flavors. But the, we're, we are one in about 74 trillion when you look at the population of 34 strengths. Well, there are only about 8 billion people on the planet, okay? So we are uniquely and wonderfully made or hardwired, depending on your belief system, you know, and how you look at that. So that was the thing that really caused me to create a favoritism toward 360 Strengths Finder and a couple of other tools is what I would typically use in yeah, the process. I would, yeah, I think I would uh, go find your strengths, Marcus Buckingham. I think it was like in the late you know, 2008-ish maybe. Yeah. And when I yeah. read that book, I thought it made a lot of sense that you're going to be more, you gravitate more to your strengths and just improving those incrementally, uh, you know, small increments could lead to big results. Mm -hmm. Plus you, you, you want to build them versus, and not, and not to say you can't, you shouldn't work on your weaknesses, but you can, you can only bring them so far. Um, so yeah, it's it's been interesting. So you mm -hmm. have coached so many different. Um, I mean, you know, just reading your bio, fifty thousand total professionals, thousand uh, plus rapid growth leaders, uh, two thousand plus aspiring entrepreneurs. Um, what what have you learned through all your coaching over twenty nine plus years? And how long is the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my. Um, you know, so much, so much. I don't even know how to answer that question. I, I mean, I've learned to your earlier point, there's greatness in all of us. And that's why we take a strengths-based approach. 75% of our weaknesses are actually birthed from strengths that are in overuse or underuse. So if we know how to manage and navigate our top strengths, we know how to manage ourselves. I've also learned that once we have a certain level of emotional awareness, and I'd also use the EQ um, methodology, I'm certified in EQ. And, so, you know, it starts with self-awareness. And so once we had a certain awakening, if you will, or, or we've achieved a certain knowingness about ourselves, and we're never fully there. Um, that creates a strong foundation to be a much better, uh, more well-rounded leader from an EQ standpoint. And then the stronger we are, the more positive impact we have on our teams and our organizations. That's why my preference is typically to work with teams of leaders, 
because all boats rise with the tide. And if you're working with more than one leader within an organization, you're not just making individual impact, you're creating organizational impact. And so to me, that's true liberation of greatness, going back to that that mission and that purpose that I know I was designed to live. Yeah, I love it. You know, I, the first time, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it happened at Sprint, uh, but I wasn't aware of it. But the first time I uh, saw an actual executive coach was the uh, CEO of Beringer uh, Ingelheim Animal Health uh, North America. And he had an executive, and I was thinking, God, why, why do you need it? You know, why you're already the CEO. Why do you need a coach? But it makes total mm-hmm. sense. It's like golf, you know, like the, the top golfers of the world have a swing coach, you know. So mm-hmm. if you're going out, you know, every Saturday to play golf, you go and you say, I don't need somebody, you know, I don't need somebody to teach me how to play golf. Well, yeah, you do, because these people that do it for a living <laughs> have it. But I mean, what type of, you know, like if a CEO reaches out to you, what's the reason? Mm-hmm. Like, why, why do they want a coach? Usually they're lifelong learners. The reading they do, the self and personal development that they're engaged in is well beyond most of the population. And they realize what you've just described. Uh, There's opportunity to get better. And, you know, it was about 13 years ago that we started micro-niching and focusing in pre-rapid and rapid growth organizations. And so what we know about that is the organization is continually changing through both organic and inorganic growth. As the organization changes, the leader has to change. It's like Marshall Goldsmith said, what got you here won't get you there. And they know that when they see through typically their futuristic strength, maybe their strategic strength, those are typically part of the strength set of most CEOs. They see what's coming and they know that what they've used in the past to be successful won't necessarily continue to propel them into the future with success. And so they they need a guide on the side and a partner. Do you That's s- where we come into play. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you see yourself, I mean, almost when you're the CEO, you know, if you're publicly held, you obviously have a, a board, but you sometimes, they're on an island, you know, so they need somebody to bounce ideas off. And, and do you, so do you see that as kind of the, one of your main roles when you're working with uh, the executive management team and the CEO? Mm -hmm. I do. And, you know, there are a few schools of thought in coaching. And one is you work with someone for a year. And if you've really done your work, you're out. And there are some situations where absolutely that's the case. I worked with a software technology company. They were the first in their field. They were owned by a private equity firm. They were sold. We worked together for about a year and a half. And it was time for me to step aside and for them to, you know, engage with that organization and to they each needed to move forward and grow in a different way. However, I would tell you, I have clients I've worked with, CEOs I've worked with for 10 to 12 years because of that fact. (laughs) They need a sounding board. 
they they want accountability. They want the person they can tell things to, and that person will keep them in the vault, right? And I, you probably don't see me talking a lot about my clients on social media or mentioning my clients when you and I have gotten together. I am a firm believer um, through my belief strength, my relator strength, that what happens in those conversations and who I work with stays in those conversations, right? So with me, it's like Las Vegas, you know? So you just, um, you don't disclose information that, that others share with you because you take that position very seriously. Back to your question, I think that's absolutely a reason a lot of CEOs and C-suite leaders continue to engage. It's because yeah. they want that partner. Yeah, that trusted advisor, the, the, the role mm -hmm. you play. And that and that's a testament to your skills and expertise in terms of having long-term relationships uh, with mm -hmm. your clients. Um, mm -hmm. did, you, did, you ever have, did you ever have to fire a client? Yes, I did. What was the reason? One time. One time. What was the reason? It was heartbreaking. Uh, I watched this, the CEO verbally abuse another member of the C-suite team had a conversation that happened again with another person. And that was a deal breaker for me. You know, I wrote, I wrote a book on <laughs> uh, abuse. And so I, I, in all consciousness, I couldn't watch someone engage in a behavior that I knew I wasn't equipped to change and it was going to continue to fragment the team, create toxicity uh, within the team and organization. And so for that, I said, you know, for that reason, I'm out. And um, <laughs> I cut the cord. Yeah. That, well, you you obviously are value driven and that uh, wasn't part of what you wanted to be a part of. So, I, right. When you work with executives, kind of what are the top three areas that are just common themes that you work, uh, you know, that they are working on? Well, we learned in some of our research, there are about seven core competencies that leaders who are going through pre-rapid and rapid growth typically need to focus on the most. But I would tell you some of the most common are um, communication. And sometimes that's caught up under executive presence. Executive brand, you know, would be another first cousin uh, to that core competency. But the, the need to communicate hard, tough information to people, believe it or not, for some, not just CEOs, but C-suite and other leaders is, is really challenging. You know, because they care about the people, they're concerned about how it will be interpreted, um, the conflict that is packaged around that sometimes has far-reaching tentacles within the team or within the organization. So absolutely communication or some form of communication is a top one. Another one, because of the niche that we're in, would tie to delegation and executing through others. You know, you're in a pre-rapid, rapid growth state. You can't continue to control everything. 
and everyone. So you have to let go. And sometimes we call it delegate and elevate, right? You're delegating, you're letting go of anything that might be an opportunity cost for you so that others can grow. Because everything that you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. And that ties to another key area, actually. That's a a good bridge, I think, into strategic use of time. A lot of entrepreneurial leaders, so many of these, most, but all of our uh, clients are first-gen entrepreneurs, right? They, They created their own baby. They're growing their own baby. And so control is a thing. You know, it's hard to let go. And so learning how to use your time in a way that's most strategic, strategy and people, strategy and people, I'll say it over and over again. Uh, And then just letting go of the small stuff. Greg McKeon says you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And then uh, our good friend Warren Buffett, we quote him a lot, don't we? He says, the difference between the most successful people and the people who are less successful is their ability to say no most of the time. Yeah, Steve Jobs was so good at that. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, he has a Yeah, another great example Um, of that particular trait. So they're first-gen entrepreneur leaders that you're working with usually. What, so what else about the average age do they come to you for, for coaching? Late 30s, early 40s, on average. Yeah, I would say. And I have a few that have hit the 5-0 mark. So what, what they're lifelong learners. So what, what, what do you think is the trigger point that says, I, need, I, need, I now need an executive coach? What do you, what do you mm-hmm. think that point is? It's awareness. You know, it goes back to what I said earlier about the higher your level of self-awareness is, the more you realize what you need, what you have, what you don't have. It's, you know, the model of conscious competence, right? We move from unconscious incompetent to um, unconscious competent, you know, and there are a couple of steps in between. And there's that point at which a leader confidently, vulnerably says, I know what I know, I know what I don't know, and both are okay. And so I better get some help with this piece around what I don't know, right? This uh, conscious, and, and that's when someone's at what we refer to as conscious incompetence. They just have reached that stage of awareness of there are certain things I don't know and I better work with someone. And that doesn't mean a coach knows it all. Remember, what we do is we ask great questions. We ask the insightful questions that uh, allow those problems to emerge, the essence of the problems, and then ultimately resources and solutions are birthed from the questions that we ask if we're doing our jobs correctly. Right. So I have to mention this because I know you have, uh, you know, you do a lot professionally, uh, you have a busy schedule, but I would be remiss because I, I, I love to talk about uh, you being a triathlete and how you fit all that training into a busy professional schedule. What is your process? I'm, 
a little obsessive about <laughs> intentionality, purpose, and the use of time. If you haven't picked up on that already, Jeff, in our 15 years of knowing each other, and I think I've given some pretty uh, strong clues in today's conversation. And I know there's a finite amount of time that's available to all of us. And so I just work really hard to structure that in a way that allows me to be a successful business person. Last year was our strongest year ever. And I, I frankly saw that coming, but I didn't see it coming. And then um, I was able to work in, you know, a few events as well. And so we, we all can do what we intentionally and purposefully set out to do. And I also feel like it should be a good role model. If I'm challenging executives to stretch and grow and be at their best back to liberating greatness, then I feel like I need to be a, a good example and a good model in making that happen. So that's part of it. I, I would tell you there's another piece to the story. I didn't swim, bike, or run before I was 47. I was engaged in a lot of strength training, which I think gave me a, a good foundation, but I have been told I wasn't an athlete, which wasn't true because I won a fitness award in high school and I had some other strong evidence that yes, I, I was athletic, uh, but I had been told that. And so it was one thing I could do at that point in my life to regain my confidence and to prove to myself that I absolutely was an athlete. And I went to that person and said, okay, you're right. I'm not an athlete. I'm actually a triathlete. So um, <laughs> that's a little bit behind the curtain on that one. You're the Michael Jordan of executive coaching. Cause you know, as Michael got cut from his varsity basketball team as a mm -hmm. sophomore and he, and he used that it, fuel his motivation to become better. And it seems like uh, mm -hmm. when you were told you're not an athlete, you say, well, I'll show them. So, um, wow. That's the first time I've been uh, parallel with Michael Jordan. Thank you. And being a Carolina girl, I absolutely know basketball and know the Michael Jordan story. I actually had a good friend in college and undergrad. He was friends and, and played in basketball with Michael, once he made it, they actually played together, even if it was pickup basketball. But yeah. Wow. That's he a... showed us, didn't he? <laughs> well, yeah. And I think the story gets over-exaggerated. Like he wasn't, he didn't make varsity. It wasn't like he didn't make the basketball team. He had to play JV again. So he played JV his freshman year and he also played his sophomore year, which is normal. You 10th grade is JV. So anyhow, uh, but yeah, I'm glad to compare you to Michael Jordan. So um, yeah, so I'd like to help two different groups of people, but uh, asking experts uh, about their advice. Um, and the first group is a recent college graduate. You know, they're going to graduate in May uh, of this coming spring. What advice would you have for them in terms of getting their first job and their and their career? I would say, remember your first position is not the position and it's not your career path, right? Like how many times will a person change careers today? What's the number up to, Jeff? You probably know that better than I do. Is yeah, it nine, it, 10? That's yeah, like, I was going to say 10, 
tend to. Yeah, I think that was the latest stat I read. And so you're, you're looking for one step in a much longer journey. And that's one of my talking points and themes, life, career, business. It's all about seasons. And so this is just one chapter, one season in your career and in your life. And so find uh, a job with a, a good organization that has a strong culture and don't just talk to people um, who have heard about the company, talk to people inside the company. Don't just read something on the internet about the organization, talk with people who have experienced and been a part of the organization because they're the ones who have the real insight into what it's like to be there, boots on the ground. Yeah, and and actually you and I got started uh, in our uh, relationship because you were doing career coaching and I was in a mm-hmm. little bit of a, a down period. Um, yeah. And I'll never forget uh, the advice and I tell people, job seekers all the time that seek my advice uh, after uh, being uh, laid off a company and they've been there at a company for many, many years. But you told me, always ask the person who gave you the time how you can help them mm-hmm. and make it a conversation. Nobody has a job for you uh, uh, when you're meeting with them, but they know people and they have insight mm-hmm. on companies and that's, and always ask how you can help them. And it really changes the dynamic. So I, I still it tell does. people what you told me in 2008. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Yeah. Good. I'm glad that uh, wisdom, that advice has perpetuated. You hear that a lot today. I don't think it's unique to me, but just that power of reciprocity is so important. And the perspective of I'm choosing the organization and the job, right? So I'm just here to get information from people. And if that ultimately leads into a job, great. And absolutely, I want to be in a position to help this person either today or at some point in the future. Sometimes payback doesn't happen immediately, right? Sometimes it takes a while for opportunity and timing to collide in order for that to happen. Absolutely, absolutely. So the second group I'd like to uh, have uh, experts like yourself give uh, advice on is so you're an individual contributor, you came out of college, and at some point, maybe you're going to lead a group of people that, you know, now you have responsibility for a team, you have direct reports. What leadership advice would you have for them in terms of becoming great leaders? Well, one thing is, it's not about you. <laughs> Your job as a leader is to create other leaders with the aspiration of at some point grooming, developing, and creating individuals who can take your job at some point. Um, Another point of wisdom is the first thing to remember about other people in general is they're not you. And so they're not going to think like you. They're not going to act like you. And so just that grace and that patience that you develop as a leader in leaning into understanding other people and really seeing into, that's what intimacy is. It's it's seeing into other people. And that's another area that I work with leaders on is understanding 
others so that you can lead and guide them in a way that's not based on your leadership style, but how they need to be led and how they need to be guided uh, through their experience with you. Yeah. And I think the pandemic really was a big part of having leaders just really think about what their teams are going through in a very difficult Mm -hmm. time. Uh, So I think that accelerated the kind of the empathetic uh, leader. uh, Absolutely. So, well, Teresa, you're one of the best people, an expert in your field. And I always come out of a conversation with you a lot smarter. So thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Jeff, thank you. I just value and treasure the opportunity and the time that we've had together this morning. It means a lot. Same here. Thank you. I just love Teresa. She is the consummate professional. It's, she's just incredible. She's so polished. And I love her saying kind of, I don't know if it's her tagline, but you know, in her leadership coaching, she's liberating individual and organizational greatness. And that I just think that's phenomenal. I just love that uh, philosophy. And she knows so much and is... Yeah, I mean, just a true professional. What did you get out of the episode, Joe? Well, I've always been a big fan of personality assessment tools. That's kind of my nature, my technical side. I feel like I have to, you know, find reason or find... um, And they were actually, uh, they could determine that you actually do have a personality. Right, right. Uh, I do have a personality. I am ISTJ, and I'll be an ISTJ till I go to my grave. So obviously one of my favorite ones had always been Myers-Briggs, and I liked the fact that they could literally put everything down into one of 16 different categories. I've kind of come to the conclusion since then that they're good for a starter when you're evaluating somebody, but you can't put too much faith in them. And she talked about the assessment tools that she uses now, which have literally not just 16, but literally trillions of possibilities that you could fit in, which I assume is the amalgamation of all the different answers that you can give to all the questions on it or something. And uh, she actually gave a quote where she said uh, that everybody is, is an individual, where she said, you are uniquely and wonderfully made, which I looked it up because I knew it was from somewhere. It's actually from Psalms, 139th Psalm and verse 14. We are all individuals. Every one of us are. It's nice to see that somebody whose profession it is to run assessment tools understands exactly how individual we really are. Yeah, and it just goes to show you, be yourself because everyone else is taken, right? I couldn't possibly be anybody else. You get what you get when you're with me. So, you know, Joe, you Sprint, you probably were assessed at least once or twice with Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. I've been Myers-Briggs. To death? Uh, yeah, six or seven times. I'm ESTJ, so you're mm-hmm. ISTJ. That's why... We're kind of brothers of different mothers type thing, I guess. That's why you do the interviewing and I don't. (laughs) What leadership philosophy do you want to impart on our audience today? Oh, Today we're going to go to the great philosopher Michael J. Scott, who one time said, sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.